So the Lord, um, he asked me to mention that there's been a lot of changes. There's more voices that we can hear and different people doing different things. And he says, this is very good. So Lord, we just thank you for the way that you lead us, that you take us in directions we wouldn't go, um, and that you know what you're doing. So we ask that we'd be in a season right now of uh, fruit bearing. Lord, as you prune things, rearrange things, move things around, Lord, we just say thank you, that you, your eye is on us, that you pay attention to us, that you've taken care to attend to us. And I can hear the changes. I thank you for highlighting it to me. I pray that all of us, Lord, that we would have a lot of hope in this season that you're going to bring something forward that no one expected. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so today I'm going to be talking about the central location of the Tabernacle of David, the way that it's designed actually to be in one place. And uh, that is inconvenient, and it's intended to be not necessarily inconvenient, but it's intended to be humbling. It's intended to require something to be there, to get there, to stay there. And uh, I'm going to probably spend a couple of the next two times I get to speak, I'm probably going to talk about this kind of same theme because when I was writing the messages today, I felt like the Lord had more to say that wouldn't fit. So um, if I get like a page through the the notes and you're like, whoa, we're never going to get there, you're probably right, but we're going to try, okay, over a couple of meetings. Okay, so I'm just going to say something to preface this message. Physically meeting with a gathering of saints in a central location is, to be totally honest with you, the main way people get sanctified in the Bible. It's actually going to church, meeting with other people. Maybe it wasn't called church, you know, before the New Testament church was formed. But getting together with other people, letting them agitate you, you agitate them, learning to forgive, learning to humble ourselves, learning to listen. The Psalms are full of this. The stories of the Old Testament are full of this. The Exodus story is full of this. Abraham's story is full of this. Learning to trust God while other people might mess up what God is doing, that is the way that you get sanctified. And we have the Holy Spirit, so he's expecting us to do that, okay? And you can't do that online, because online, when people annoy you, you can just turn them off or switch to somebody else. You have to do this face-to-face. What I'm describing, if you want it to work. Now, I'm going to preface this with a couple of things. One, you're going to hear me say some things, and you're going to think, I have to do this And it's not a have to, it's a can do. You get to, if you want to. Nobody has to do the things that I'm going to lay out today. The other thing is, you're going to hear, I need to do this, and it's not a I need to do, it's I need to pray. These are things that we need to pray about. If you do them, you'll you'll break them. It's like, I can't think of a good analogy, but it's be like, you know, brain surgery, and you're reaching there with your hand, you're going to destroy the brain. You actually have to do it the right way. And the right way is to pray. Only God can rearrange the things that, that need to happen, okay? So, the persecuted church would be the primary place that we could look right now to be like, does it really matter if we get together in a physical location? Does the persecuted church meet together even though people are looking for them and trying to kill them? Yes, why? Because that's the way the Holy Spirit's leading them. (laughs) So if the Holy Spirit's leading you, he's leading you to meet. Otherwise, he'd be like, persecuted church, don't do that, you're going to get hurt. (laughs) But he doesn't do that. He actually has them meet at great personal expense and, and the risk of peril, okay? So that's how the Spirit leads. Now, Western-centric theology, what I mean by that is you were born in a place very unique in all of human history. You were born in the wealthiest, 
most free, one of the only, honestly, only free places the earth has ever seen. You were born into a reality that for most people throughout human history has not been real. You can afford to live by yourself. Most people could never afford to live by themselves. Like they, they need each other to do the things to keep them all together and pursued God, those who knew God, pursued God in that reality, in that context. You happen to live in this weird time where you can check in as much as you want to or as little as you want to via social media. You have the resources to, you know, you have a Bible, you have a concordance, you have all these resources where you can satisfy your own heart that you're knowing God, but God would say, to know me is to know my body, my people, like all of them together, okay? So Western-centric theology, American. I won't just limit it to America, though. I'd say there's a Western mindset that's infiltrated the entire earth at this point. A lot of Africa is influenced by a Western mindset. Most of Asia is influenced by a Western mindset. Just look online. You can see it. And so we have to understand we have corrupted much of the world with an ideal of what church looks like that's not ideal. It's not right. We need to repent of this, actually, and get out of it ourselves. So the gospel is not human-centered. The Western theology is a human-centric theology. This isn't on the notes. I'm talking to you. Western-centric theology is an apostasy. It's human-centered. You won't find a human-centered reality in here. It's Jesus-centered. This is Jesus-centered. We were saved unto something, saved unto Jesus, not saved for ourselves. That was what broke us was thinking we could live on our own. We aren't saved for ourselves. We are saved for a man. And the man's name is Jesus. And if he's not the center of all that we're reading in here, if we're the center, if it's like us getting free from addiction or us getting free from pain or us finding purpose in our lives, we have moved the center to us. Do you see what I'm saying? No, it's about Jesus getting a sanctified people. It's about Jesus getting the family that he died for and was raised again for. It's about Jesus getting all the honor, all the glory, all the wealth. Do you see what I'm saying? It has to be a Jesus-centric gospel or it's not good news. That's, we're living in a man-centered gospel right now, you know, little g. It's not good news. The earth centering itself on itself is killing the earth. That's what we're literally witnessing right now. Okay, so the gospel that is human-centered is an apostasy. The gospel for real, the G, capital G one, is Jesus-centered. Those being changed by it are also increasingly Jesus-centered, not just in their thought life. You have to be increasingly Jesus-centered in the way you spend your money, the way you spend your time, where you spend your time, where you spend your money, and the things that you dream about in the future. Mostly the things you dream about. It's called vision, and without vision, you will perish. And so you want to have a vision for becoming more and more Jesus-centered as your days unfold. What am I going to look like when I'm 70? Am I going to be more Jesus-centered? Tim, what are you going to look like when you're 50? Are you going to be more Jesus-centered? Just kidding. You're Jesus-centered when you're 30. Excellent. <laughs> okay. So now David's tabernacle, that's what we're trying to emulate here. That's where Jesus' throne is. Okay. So I want you to think about that for a second. Isaiah 16.5 tells us, in mercy, the throne will be established. That's Isaiah prophesying the coming of the Messiah and the fact that he would set up a government. In mercy. It's God's mercy that there's even a throne we can go to. In mercy, his throne will be established, and one, capital O, will sit on it in truth in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. That means practically, if you're coming boldly before this throne, 
you're physically gathering with those who want to increasingly worship and pray. What I mean is if you're really coming, that Hebrews 10, okay, let us go boldly before the throne of grace. Where is the throne? The tabernacle of David. It would be like, well, which one? <laughs> you know, there's a couple here in town. There's one in Kansas City. There's 10,000 of them all over the earth. Which one? The one God has assigned you to, the one God has called you to, the place God has called you to meet with the other saints and to enthrone him night and day on the praises of his people. It might not be the good one. It might not be the one you would prefer. It might be. But the truth is you have to have a vision of going to where Jesus is, not Jesus coming to where you are. And there's been, unfortunately, a truth in the Bible that God leaves the 99 to go after the one, and we've celebrated that rather than humility and recognizing the mercy of God, been like, he shouldn't have to, really. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like if I help my kid out financially one time, and he's like, sweet, I can do whatever I want. Dad will help me out. Would that be pleasing to Dad? No, but that'd be merciful of me, right, if I were like, I'm going to have mercy on you because you made a mistake. But we've taken that reality of his mercy and turned it into license for selfishness. He leaves the 99, he comes after me, he's running after me, he's chasing after me, I can go wherever I want, and he's running after me. Is that pleasing to God? Is that true? No, that is not true. And it's important that we make the distinction. Yes, he is willing to leave the 99 to come after the one, but the truth is if I'm growing up, he shouldn't have to for me. That's the story of the prodigal son. The older brother didn't get that. The older brother should have got, hey, dad's really pleased with me. He didn't have to go looking for me. Do you see what I'm saying? And he didn't get that. We want to be a people that are growing up and recognizing, I need to more and more go to where God is, not so much expect him to come to where I am. Does that make sense? Now, this is practical. What I'm describing is practical. And in the end days, it says, let us go boldly before the throne, not giving up the habit of meeting together, even more so as we see the day approaching. That what I'm telling you is not some weird interpretation of the Bible. It is literally the main and plain of the Bible. But we tend to gauge ourselves in a Western-centric mindset that just says, I'm doing better than the people around me, not Jesus deserves more than what I've done already. Do you see what I'm saying? You can't do it, you pray it, okay? So if you're hearing, Tom thinks I should go to more meetings. Now, it's interesting to me that this theme tends to come up. I'm preaching to myself today. I'm going to be leaving town this afternoon. I'm going to miss my Monday night set because of Labor Day. I'm going to miss my Tuesday morning set. Then I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to miss my Saturday morning set. And it's like, why, God, do you release this message when I know I'm not going to be at nearly as many meetings this week? And he says, well, maybe you got some time to think about what you want. Like, what do you want? You ever been away from here and been like, I really miss it? Like, that's good. That's being away from the throne and being like, I miss the place of his feet. I miss the throne. I miss connecting with the stability of who Jesus is with other people. Like, hearing what other people think about him, it settles me down and reminds me it's not just me and my own magical adventure of finding God. Like, that'd be awful. We want to actually find God for real. And if everybody's finding the same God, we can know we're okay. This is real. The Holy Spirit's leading more than just me, and I can be sharpened like iron. Now, when iron sharpens iron, how much is there more iron left or less? Less. Is it painful to the iron? Yeah, I mean, if it could feel, it would be. Is the iron changed? So if iron's really sharpening iron, the iron that should be permanently changed. 
If that analogy is true, and it is. And so I have to be looking at, am, is my experience of meeting with other people, getting a vision for more and more until the day, as the day approaches, coming boldly before the throne, am I actually coming to the place where he's ruling, or am I just walking into a room and he's not really ruling me? And I don't see him ruling the person I disagree with or the person that's saying the thing I don't understand. I just kind of think, I'm here on my own, thinking my own things. He's pleased that I showed up. Or am I actually coming to a throne and like, are you ruling in that statement? Are you ruling in that prayer? Are you ruling in that song response and growing up into more revelation of who he is? Does that make sense? Okay, now physically meeting with other believers is increasingly growing out of fashion with those who think they're pure. If you watch online, especially you can see it, but you can hear it just walking around town. There's a, a growing frustration with the church by people who think they're above the church. Not that they don't want to go to church and be changed. They think, I've changed past the church. Is that true? No, it's not. If they had changed ahead of the church, they'd be loving the church more. Do you see what I'm saying? It's when we get frustrated with the church and we're like, I'm getting out of this thing that we have to realize that's one of the first off-ramps for Satan to get us out of growing in love. So right now, we have to be a people that are like, there are parts I don't like. <laughs> like, there are parts that are getting more irritating to me, but that's because there's more light shining on the way things should be, not just in the people around me, but in me. And that conflict, that tension, it needs a miracle, and I get tired of needing a miracle. Anybody here ever get tired of needing a miracle? That's going to happen more and more, thank you, as the days approach because there's more shaking, breaking, conflict, tribulation. He says, I'm going to offer you up to tribulation, not out of hope, not with no hope, but because of the hope that some of us will say, I never could stay in this tension in the first place. God, help me stay in the tension. We start to let go. And if we're just like little, you know, bubbles and God's blown us back and forth, we can do that. If we're trying to keep ourselves in the tension, we'll fail. You see what I'm saying? What he's really trying to get us to do is to let go and recognize there is no righteousness of my own. The tension has to be there. If I get rid of this tension, he's going to put me in another one. And if he doesn't, he's let me go, and that's not good, right? It's like you have one relationship, and that breaks down. You get in another relationship. If you don't deal with your issues, you're going to find issues in every relationship you're in. This is a church is a relationship. And so we have to be people that are like, okay, the I don't have to get rid of the tension. I have to let go of my, my desire to try and control my comfort and let him grow me up so that this stuff doesn't bother me as much. And I'm not really talking so much at you. I'm talking with us about me too. Okay. I don't know if that made sense. Okay. Now, page one of the notes. No, the last thing I want to say is being sanctified according to the Bible, and this is 1 Peter 4. So the Lord, the reason I'm doing this outside of the notes, is the Lord took me to 1 Peter 4 this morning. He said, I want you to preach this before you preach the message. In 1 Peter 4, it says that Jesus, he suffered, and so we should actually be willing to suffer with him. And that suffering that he suffered was he came from a super comfortable, powerful place, and he came in humility and suffered through a life that we are supposed to live as well. And so we're supposed to be like, hey, I'm supposed to do that with him, not church. If, it's, if there's any suffering at church, it's bad church, and I'm not going there anymore. We're supposed to be like, oh, of course there's suffering at church. That's the conflict point between heaven and earth. That's where the war happens. Yes, this is going to be rocky and difficult, but he will take us through. All right, I just want to pray for us. Holy Spirit, this morning, 
Just give us new strength. I just appreciate what Jen was, uh, what you were leading Jen to have us pray. Give us new strength to not just stay in it, like not quit. New strength to find you in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, page one of the notes. Anybody here, just want to turn in my page, ever found that the centrality or the, like the, the idea that you got to drive across town and go to this seems kind of silly. Why can't I just do this at home? Anybody ever had that thought occur to them? Yeah, that's, a, that's an entirely logical thought. There's a reason that we drive across town, and it's actually to get us out of ourselves. It's to get us into a place called sanctified or set apart. And so if we just kind of treat God like casual, like we just, he just kind of goes where we go. I go to the woods, he's in the woods. I go to the mountain, he's in the mountain. I go to the river, he's in the river. Wherever I want to go, that's where we're going. That's the way that the, the bales were worshipped. Just kind of, they just kind of carried them, put them wherever they wanted. Hey, this is a great spot. This is high. Seems important. Let's worship him there, and then let's take him down to the other place that we're going. That's not God. Now, God goes with us. So Psalm 139 tells us clearly, I go to the top of the mountain, he's there. I could go to the deepest darkness, he's there. But he's everywhere. He's not kind of traveling with us. He happens to be there already, and he will be there after you leave. But to humble ourselves and receive his leadership, we actually have to let him move us, not we move him. Does that make sense? And that's really what he wants. He wants to save us from selfishness, okay? So ready for heaven equals broken in our pride. The analogy of the bride of Jesus is an analogy not about beauty. It's about readiness. And it's actually about acceptability as a sacrifice. So when you hear about a pure spotless bride, you sh- if you're like me, you picture like, you know, our soon-to-be daughter-in-law, Caitlin, in a white wedding dress, or Samantha when we got married in a white wedding dress. But the pure and spotless is actually talking about a, an animal, a lamb, a sacrifice. Like, we're supposed to be a pure and spotless sacrifice for Jesus, not like a gorgeous, beautiful bride. Though, if you're an acceptable sacrifice, you will be beautiful without any spot or blemish. That's actually, that's the way Israel judged a sacrifice, okay? And so we have to understand our Western thinking, it kind of romanticizes things that if we really knew what the Bible was talking about, we'd be like, oh, yeah, okay. This is like Abraham carrying Isaac up the mountain. Like, that was really intense, like really difficult to be like, I'm going to take this promise from God and treat it like a sacrifice. Did Abraham lose Isaac? No, he actually got Isaac that way. He got Isaac that way. So if you treat your readiness like, oh, he really wants me to be ready to be a sacrifice, what you'll find is that's where you're going to find life. That's where you're going to find, oh, oneness with Jesus. Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Will you ever be the perfect sacrifice? No. But he wants you like him. He wants you with him. He wants you one with him. As one with him as you want to go. And we know from the Bible, no one's going to want to go as far as he went because he's infinitely able to pay that price. But we can come if we want to as close as we're willing to keep saying, bring me closer. It's very tempting, though, to stop that at some point in time when it's too costly to our lives. That's when we should be buckling down and saying, God, there's something in the world that I like more than you. Why? Why? What is it? Because I'm still not totally satisfied. You ever had that experience? Like, you just want a break, but the truth is when you take the break, it feels worse. And you're like, I didn't, the break doesn't even work. I need God. And God's like, yeah, we're at a point 
where I'm showing you your flesh and you're picking your flesh instead of me, that's okay. I'll help you get over that bridge. Get to the place where you, and you've experienced several of these. What I'm describing, you, I know you. You've experienced several of these in your lives where you're like, I don't think I can go any further. And the next thing you know, you're on the other side of it. You're like, I can't believe I was that person. Like, what was I thinking, right? We all hit these places where God's trying to get us to a central location where Jesus is. And we're like, ugh. No further, it's too costly. And what he wants us to say, okay, at that moment in time, what I don't need is a break from like the source of life. What I want is to find out how close I can come, not how far away I can get from him and still be tethered to him, right? That's a leash. He doesn't want us on a leash. He wants us close. He wants to hug us, okay? So the analogy of the bride of Jesus is actually an analogy about readiness. And that's what Revelation 19.7 says. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Ready for who? For Jesus. Ready for Jesus. Are you ready for Jesus? Amen. Now, the bride is a location. It's not a group of people. It's not you alone. The bride is actually physical geography. It's a place called Jerusalem. That's the bride. I'm going to read you a couple passages. Isaiah 62, 4 to 7. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, speaking of Jerusalem, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hephzibah. Who? Israel? Israel and her land. Israel in the geographic location God has placed her. And your land, Beulah. He's talking about land. Do you hear this? For the Lord delights in you. In your land, how many times has he said land here? One, two, three. Your land shall be married. Who's married? The land. The land is married to God. It's going to be. For as a young man marries a virgin, so your son shall marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord do not keep silent. And give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. So this is the question that the Lord would ask us this morning. How are you ever going to voluntarily choose to take your stuff up and go to Jerusalem if it's so difficult to day after day take your stuff up and come to his throne now? Like his throne now is a lot closer, actually, than Jerusalem. It's easier to get to. It's less contentious. How are we ever going to go? How are we ever going to live into this reality? It would take a miracle, right? That's the point. And day by day right now, we're learning to break down our pride. And instead of expecting God to come to my living room, he's like, come to where I am. What you're going to find is a more satisfying life. It just doesn't look like that to your flesh. Your flesh thinks, if I do that, it's going to cost me all the other things I was going to do. And God is like, if you do that, it's going to cost you all the power to do that well. And this is what he's, the way he says it in Matthew 6. Seek first my kingdom, and the rest of that will be added unto you. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, all these things will be added to you if you seek first my kingdom. His kingdom is a throne. Where's the throne at? The tabernacle of David. That's where it's at. According to the Bible, Isaiah 16, that's where it's at. Now, when we say Jerusalem, we have to understand he's actually talking about the new Jerusalem. When he talks about that, that land being married to him, he's talking about when it comes down out of heaven brand new, and then it starts to merge into the earth. He's actually, there's a river that comes out of Jesus' feet when he sits on the throne. This is in Ezekiel 40 to 48. And that river goes to the east and to the west. Part of it goes into the to the Mediterranean Sea, part of it goes into the Dead Sea, and it starts to bring life wherever it goes. So he has a plan to return, and his throne is going to hover over the Temple Mount, 
And he's going to actually, his heavens are his throne, the earth is his footstool. His feet are going to land on the sanctified place, the set-apart place. And it's going to start to renew the earth after a war that engulfs the entire earth. And we're actually at the, and I believe, at the, the beginning stages of that war, which is breaking the whole earth. This is why we're supposed to be seeking that throne right now. Right? Can you see that the earth needs a solution that man can't seem to come up with? I mean, I don't know if you guys heard the political speech from the president of America this week, but he sounded just like the last guy. Like, there's a war that's coming to America. Neither side is going to relent, and they're, getting, they're picking up the exact same tactics. We need a different throne. We need a different throne. Russia needs a different throne. The Ukraine needs a different throne. The Great Britain needs a different throne. The African countries need... Can you see this? Am I telling you something you don't know? The whole earth needs different leadership. That's what I'm saying. This is how it happens. By actually us being willing to be broken down in our pride and be like, I don't want a God I take with me. I want God to bring me to the place. We need humility, right? Does the earth need humility? Do the, do the national leadership need humility? Are we getting the leaders that we want in our own pride? According to the Bible, we are. According to the Bible, he says, if you won't humble yourself and come to me, this is Leviticus 26. He says, I'll give you leaders that hate you. And we're supposed to look at this and be like, God, am I not coming to you on your terms? Am I coming to you on my terms? And if so, maybe I'm responsible for this terrible leadership. And he would say, yes, you are actually. You have the Holy Spirit. Now, the people that you're tempted to be like, they're messing everything up, most of them don't have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can lead you to see the kingdom. Without the Spirit, you can't even see that throne. And so if I've got the spirit, I have an obligation to let him break down my pride and let him move me to the place of his feet. Does that make sense? Revelation 21, 2 to 3. And everybody who does this, what they do is they, in their, in their mind, will, and emotion, in their heart, they come boldly before a throne that is actually in the heavenly realm in a new and living way, and then they don't give up the habit of meeting together on earth with the eye of, let's go before him boldly together, stirring up each other to love and good works. Where are all the love and good works happening? In heaven. There's only good one good one. Where's the good one at? In heaven. So if we come boldly before his throne, we're actually coming to the new Jerusalem that's going to come down out of heaven. Okay, now listen. Revelation 21, 2 to 3. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So if you want to be part of the, what's called the bride, you actually want a new geographic residency, a new location where you spend most of your time, where you spend most of your money. Isn't that where you live? Like where you live, that's where you spend most of your time, most of your money. That's where you dream about. That's what you fix up. That's what you're talking about. That's what you're, is that mostly what you're thinking about is living in the new Jerusalem? Is it what you're mostly spending your money on, mostly spending your time doing? Or are you kind of divided between the world? I got to do the, you know, I got to feed the kids and I want to go to the prayer meeting. And he's like, you have to at some point say, God, this is double-minded. This is lukewarm. It's not going to work. But I don't know how to do that and not do this well. And he'd be like, seek first the kingdom. I promise you, I will give you this well. How many of you have seen this in your own marriage, your own relationship with your kids, your own job? I actually stopped trying to fix it. I went after the Lord, and he fixed it. You ever seen that? That's real. That's the way this is designed to lead us to stop trying to fix our own problems and let him be our Savior. But this is real practical. This is like time, money, dream stuff that we do every day, day in and day out. And 
when we're here at church or we're in a prayer meeting, it's easy to be like, yeah, this is good. But it's when the pressure is on over here outside of the prayer meeting, we're like, okay, that's got to take a back seat. I got to do this. And that is what's breaking the whole earth. Can you see that? That's what's breaking everything is a sliding scale of compromise based on pressure. And I can tell you the Bible says more pressure is coming. That means more compromise is coming. And you don't want to be a person that goes with the world into more compromise of what's okay in order to save life. Because according to the Bible, what's going to be okay to save life is death of millions of people. You don't want to be a party to that. Okay? And you will be if you don't repent of it. You will be. Spiritually, you'll be counted a party to the death of millions if you don't take a stand against it. And this is the stand to take. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Revelation 21, 27. But there shall by no means enter it, speaking of the new Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Your eternal destiny, our eternal destiny, is determined by our willingness to be made ready to enter a physical location. Your entire eternal destiny, the trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years that you're about to experience, they entirely depend on your willingness to be broken in your pride so you can go into a city. For real. And nothing unclean can go into this city. And so when I come here, I've got to be willing to say, I'm driving across town because God knows I'm proud. Anybody here proud? And if you do this day after day after day, you wake up early in the morning, you come here late at night, or you leave here late at night to go back home, at some point, if you're a person with a brain that works, you're like, why am I doing this? And the Bible says you're doing it because he's trying to get you ready to go into a city where there's nothing unclean in it. And the very thought that you have the ability in this new and living way to approach God and you wouldn't is offensive to God. It's offensive to God that he would send his son, that he would live an infinitely righteous life, pay an infinitely unjust price, say, come gather together, learn to love each other with me, and we'd be like, I kind of don't feel like it. Why do I got to drive across town? Why don't I just pull you down like a bale to my house? Do you see what I'm saying? We have to be a people that wrestle this out because to the world, this is a waste of time. In the world's eyes, I will hopefully have wasted the second half of my life. But heaven forever will say, come, enter into my rest. Well done, good and faithful servant. You humbled yourself before me. You did something that made no sense to you, made no sense to anyone else. You missed family holidays. You missed this thing. You missed that thing. Not because you thought it was a good idea to miss it. I've tried it that way. That doesn't work. But because I thought it was a good idea for you to miss it, welcome, son, to the house of the humble. <laughs> Welcome to the place where people don't lead themselves, where I lead them. Enjoy. I'm going to lead you forever. And if we don't get broken in our pride, we'll hate heaven. In fact, we won't be there. He won't let us in because we won't like it. <laughs> if you don't like to be led by God, you don't like heaven, right? We have to be led by God out of our pride. Our entire eternal destiny is determined by our willingness to be made ready to enter a physical location called the New Jerusalem. Because of this, we're supposed to get as close as we can as often as, and I want you to hear what I say, we'd like to. You're, you are not required to do any of these things. If you want to live your whole life, go where you want to, when you want to, call it good, call it God, he'll let you. 
He'll literally let you walk around thinking you know Jesus and you don't. It says it in Matthew 7. He says, many are going to come to me. They're like, I prophesied your name. Cast out demons in your name. I'm whatever I want. I preach the gospel. Every country. I hit every country. All 100, 250 or whatever, however many there are. I got them all, God. And he's like, I never knew you. I wasn't calling you to go to any of those places. I called you to come to my feet. Do you see what I'm saying? But he will let you. This is the terrifying reality of free will. He will let you completely delude yourself to think you're totally pleasing him, that you're the best one. He will let you. This terrifies me. Does this terrify you? Because the simple truth is, over and over and over, he says, my throne is in the tabernacle of David. I'm coming to resurrect the tabernacle of David. In the last days, the tabernacle of David, the tabernacle of David, you were born into the generation that's seen something no one else has seen for thousands of years, the tabernacle of David. And it's like, I, I don't know. It's a lot of gas and a lot of time. Isn't that crazy? Generations will judge us. Who bought the gas? Was it you? No. Who gave you the time? Do you know you live in the most leisurely place on the planet ever? You got more time than anyone else ever. And we're like, it's going to take too much time. And then you get out in the world, you're so busy, you got no time. If you're like me, you got no time anyway. It's crazy that we are living in the last days. He's literally doing all the things the Bible promises, and we're like, I don't know if I got time for the return of Jesus, for his throne. I'm not telling you to do anything different. I'm saying, we need to pray about this. You can't do anything different. That's the point of the throne. But let us come boldly in this new and living way, stirring up each other to love and good works. That's, that's really what the Lord's having me do right now is to stir you. It, it's iron sharpening iron. It doesn't feel that great, but it is great. It is great. And someday he will say, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Because I found you. When I came, I found you feeding the other servants the right food at the right time. At the right time. You know, you can pick and choose these realities. You can make yourself a nice little book, get a nice little theology, dole it out when it's convenient for you, when it looks good for you, when the right people are going to like it on Facebook or whatever, but it's got nothing to do with saying it at the right time. The true thing at the right time. We want to be a people that find ourselves when he says, come out to meet me. Do you know that most of the Western church doesn't understand the parable of the bridesmaids. They would never go anywhere to meet anyone. They think God's following them around, chasing them down, taking that for granted. I do whatever I want. He's going to come find me. He lo- that's how great, that's great, how great his love is. He would be like, you're loveless. You don't understand love at all. When I call the bridesmaids, I'm saying, come out to meet me. Trim your lamp. There's something to go do, some place to go. That's what we're living in right now. Do you see darkness? Do you see a place to go? Aren't we blessed? We are blessed. I want to tell you, I, I'm online, I see, I don't know how many, probably a handful this week that are like, I want to know how to find a place like you guys got in Kalamazoo. Literally. I mean, and it's week in and week out. I want to know how to find that. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. When I drive across town, I'm like, all right. And in my own delusion, I think, I'm going to get it together. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't want to quit. And he's like, that very reality, it shows you, it should show you, you don't like this. You haven't really found me in it. 
is if I thought I was driving across town to meet the physical Jesus and his feet were going to stand right there. And I've, I've actually experienced this a few times. I called Lonnie Saunders Jesus the other day because I saw somebody walk in. I thought it was Jesus. If I thought actual Jesus was here, you couldn't keep me away. I'd literally camp out in the parking lot. And I want to tell you something. Jesus is here. It's just our lack of faith that we don't experience it over and over and over and over. He is here. We're two or three are gathered. He's there. The Bible says it real clear. So where can you find two or three people gathered to try and find his throne? Are there a bunch of places in town where you can find two or three people gathered together trying to find his throne, get sanctified, get rid of their own junk, stir each other up in the tabernacle of David night and day prayer? Can you find that at a bunch of places here? I only know one place, honestly, to be totally candid. I know of one place where that's like, I know a few people, they actually want that. I got to learn to see Jesus in the middle of that. This is a miracle. It's a miracle that you could find two or three, and we've got a whole room full of them. Literally. It's a miracle if you could find two or three. Hebrews 10, 12 to 26. I'm almost done. But this man, speaking of Jesus, and I'm at the bottom of page one on the notes, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, how many sacrifices is Jesus going to offer for sin? One. Just one. Sat down at the right hand of God. Where is Jesus? He's at the right hand of God. This is important to know. He's not like false gods. He's not like in everybody's car. He's not, you know, wandering around in the, you know, the, the little picture that you see, the painting of him reaching down for the shepherd boy. He's seated. He's a man of power. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of power. And by his spirit, he is everywhere all the time. But he is physically next to the Father. Right now, it's, it's clear. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If you're not being sanctified, if you're not being set apart into this one central location, if not more, over more and more time, you're like getting more convicted is what I'm describing. I'm not talking about where you spend your minutes. I'm talking about where you spend your heart's conviction. Like, God, I, I got this thing. and I don't really like it that much, but... I do like it sometimes, but mostly when I like it, I like it for me because of what I feel. I don't like it when it's dead and empty and there's conflict and people aren't getting along. And I don't see that, that your feet are there, and that's why the conflict is there. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why the conflict is there. That's where he is. And I got to get out of my own brain to get saved, sanctified, set apart from the way the world sees this stuff. For by one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being. That's active. You will always be being saved is what that means. It, forever you will be being saved. Because forever you're going to need his leadership. That's what that means. And in a trillion years, you're going to add, he's going to tell you what to do. And if you do it, you're with him. And you're going to be. Like, I prophesied over you. You're going to be. Because you're going to see the death in your own self-leadership. You're going to see the death in being apart from him. You're going to see that an infinitely great God deserves all of our attention forever. All of our willingness to be moved forever. Perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds. I will write them. Are you done having your mind, will, and emotions rewritten? No. That's what he's doing, though, right? Has any part of your mind, will, and emotions been rewritten? Is he faithful to finish what he started? Where's most of the rewritten happened, if you're honest? It's been in this reality. I can guarantee it because this is where you're praying. 
This is where you're hearing other people getting rewritten. This is where iron is sharpening iron. This is where there's a testimony of being stirred up to love and good works. And I know it because the Bible says it. I know it because the Bible says it. And so if that's true, more and more I should be like, I want to be rewritten for him. That's, that's what he's doing. This is what he's doing at the right hand of the Father. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Why? Because they don't want me to. They don't want me to. And the more that they see, the more they want to talk to me. The more they see of their sin, the more light they're living in, the more they want to give me, I won't remember it anymore. As far as the east is from the west, if they say they have sin, I am faithful and just to forgive. But if they say they have no sin, then they make, they're a liar, and the truth is not in them. That's what it says. Now, where there's remission of these, speaking of lawless deeds and sins, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, because of this, because there's one place, that's what this is saying. There's a place you can go. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus and by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is his flesh. This came out in worship, by the way. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because there is a place, let's go there together. That's what he said. Because there is a place, let's go there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And that's what, that means it takes faith. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another. Everybody say one another. Other people's experience of the leadership of Jesus, it depends on your testimony. Other people's experience of the leadership of Jesus, it depends on your testimony. We actually don't come here to pray for Israel because Israel needs our prayers. We come here to pray for Israel because we need to see Israel right. We don't pray for the persecuted church because the persecuted church needs our prayers. They got God. We come here because we need to see the persecuted church right. We're so arrogant. We think that that's not our reality. And that makes us unsaved. You know that? If you don't suffer with him, you're unsaved. You have to suffer with him. When one part suffers, the, the rest suffer with them. Like, we have to. We come here because Jesus deserves a set-apart people. That's why we come here, if we come here at all. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. Do you know that's what I'm doing right now? I'm exhorting you not to show up at more meetings. Hear what I'm saying? I'm exhorting you to pray about how much of the world you love. I'm exhorting you to pray about how much of the throne room you love. You can't really come to more meetings and have it work. You have to let the Holy Spirit do something miraculous in leading you to his feet and bringing his enemies to the place that he is. He wants his enemies brought there. So if you hear what I'm saying, you're like, I am selfish and I don't feel like I can do that. That enemy belongs under his feet. I am gossiping. I'm inconsiderate. I am uh, 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 whatever you are, human. He wants humans at his feet. And he wants to clean us of the things that would resist his house of prayer. Do you see what I'm saying? This is a place for sinners. That's what I mean. We don't come here because we're great at praying. We come here because we're not. That's the point, okay? And let us consider one another in order to strip love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, and to not do this is willful sin, 
After we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Once you've seen the place of his feet, once you've experienced the throne room, once he's written some part of his law on your mind, once he's written some part on your emotions, if you're like, got enough, good Jesus, thanks, he's like, you can't be saved. I gave one sacrifice forever that's purified those who are being sanctified. And if you fall away, there's nothing that can save you. You'd be to crucify Christ all over again. That's Hebrews 6. You have to actually say, I'm either growing or dying. I'm either growing and getting set apart into a central location with him. And it's not just the central location. It's the antiphony of it. It's the Israel-centric nature of it. It's the prophetic nature of it. It's growing in the Lord. It's growing in the fruits of the Spirit. But this is one thing that is so offensive to Western-minded people. This idea that I got to go anywhere that somebody told me to. And he'd be like, I didn't tell you you have to do anything. You are welcome to if you want to, and why wouldn't you? And I've heard this many times. I've heard it from people that were here and left. You don't have to do that. You, they're right. You absolutely don't have to. But if you could, why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to get sanctified and get to his feet and get ready to meet Jesus? Like, you don't have to do anything. You, don't have to, you can go to hell if you want to. But you don't have to. You can actually come to where he's at if you want to. So this isn't a, I got to do it this way that Tom's describing. No. This is a, I can come as close as I want to as long as I'm willing to ask him and he's willing to draw me and he says he's willing. How did he say that? How did he say he's willing? Yeah, that's right. The cross. The cross says, I'm willing to do, I'm, I'm dying to get you. I'm do, I'll do anything to get you. And he already has. And we're supposed to reciprocate and be like, I don't know how, I don't know when and where, but I want to die with you, Jesus, and I can't. You did it for me. Lead me in the cross. Lead me in the cross. Do you see what I'm saying? One last thing. Go with me to um, the last pitch of the notes. Oh, no, no. Stop with me on your way there. Uh, on page three, I'm going to read you two passages, then we're going to end. Song of Solomon 5.2. Now, it's very tempting to think, if you're an American Christian, God's just glad I'm saved. He'll come wherever I am. I love, I actually find it easier to worship him when I'm all by myself. Of course you do. There's nobody bothering you. But that's not what the, the reality of being in a relationship with Jesus is about. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't moments, but the Song of Songs, or the, the story of the Shulamite, that is a picture of a growing relationship and vibrancy and sanctification and weakness. So at the end of the story of the Shulamite, she comes up leaning on her beloved, right? At the beginning of the story, she's tanned from working her tail off in the sun. And at the end, she comes up leaning on her beloved. So it's a story of becoming weak, but in the humility of the leadership of God. She has all kinds of great ideas. I want to take you home to mom. He's like, I don't want to go home to mom. I want to try to talk to you here. And she's like, I don't want to get out of bed. He's like, come with me. Like, there's all kinds of places she don't want to go that she learns to go with him. So I just want to read this to you, okay? Song of Solomon 5.2. I sleep, but my heart is awake. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of night. He's like, I'm out in a place you're not in right now. I've taken off my robe. This is her answer. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? And she doesn't realize that this came from opening the gate of her garden, right? She was a garden enclosed. Then the garden got unlocked. She's like... Eat and drink, oh friends, blow north wind, blow south wind, it's making me clean. And then she's all clean, and he's like, let's go do something new. And she's like, I don't want to get out of bed, I'm all clean. 
She wants it on her terms. You want it on your terms. That makes you human. But people that are being sanctified acknowledge that, and they say, I didn't get this far doing stuff on my own terms. Let's go all the way, okay? My beloved put his hand by the latch of the door. My heart yearned for him. I arose to open for my beloved. This is a transition point of the Song of Songs. This is the moment where she becomes selfless. It really wasn't. It, the, she opened the door with the opening of the gate and the, the, the groom coming in and, you know, the north wind blowing and the south wind blowing. But this is her first choice to be selfless right here. I arose to open for my beloved and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh. That's myrrh is symbolic of grace to die on the handles of the lock. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. She wasn't even thinking about the rejection. She was thinking about the pursuit. Do you see this? It's like suddenly he left her. She could be offended and like, where did you go? But she's like, no, I remember the voice. I remember. I remember what it was like when he touched me. And she's like, where can I find him? which is a song I like. Okay. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had turned away and was gone. My heart leaped up when he spoke. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he never, he gave me no answer. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the walls took my veil away from me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell him that I am lovesick. The way to endure the war against the saints, there's a 42-month war coming against the church, is to get broken in your pride and get up out of bed and go where he wants. That's the way to endure. She gets the beating, and she's like, I don't care. I know where he's at. I know what he's like. And they ask him, what's he like? Where's he at? She can tell it. She can tell it. She can't get there, but she can tell it. Can you tell it? Can you tell what the new Jerusalem is like? Can you tell what the, the feet of his throne is like? Can you tell the way it changes you? Can you tell the way it breaks you in your pride? Do you have a testimony for the hope? Do you have a reason for the hope? That passage is in the Bible. Last thing I want to read to you. Go to the very last page of the notes, page four, please. Oh, 1 Peter 3, 15 to 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. This is, this is a bonus one. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Where are they going to revile you as evildoers? In the tabernacle of David. It says they're going to blaspheme God the tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. If you're counted one with him because you're weird and you drive across town and try to sit at his feet and they'll be like, it's an imaginary thing, it's not even happening, why don't you come out with us and do some stuff? And you're going to be counted a criminal like Jesus. And he says, when that happens, have a reason. Say, tell him why. Why are you doing that? Do you know why you're doing it? Do you know why you drive across town day in and day out? Do you have a hope in that? It's not apparent. And if you're like, well, he's going to send the signs, wonders, and miracles, then everybody's going to know we're not idiots. You're wrong. It's not going to happen. He might send the signs, wonders, and miracles, and if he does, they're going to be like, you're drunk. You're bad. You're doing something wrong. But there's a good chance that what he really wants is what's going on in here, not so much the signs, wonders, and miracles, so the whole city knows we're not dumb. He wants us to be ready for Jesus, pure and spotless, right? Our flesh really wants to be vindicated, and his spirit really wants to break our pride. And then you see that Revelation 13, 5 to 7, where it talks about where people are going to be defamed as evildoers or blasphemed. Now, the last passage, Matthew 4, 4, 22 to 4, Matthew 22, 4 to 14. Tatum, you want to come back up? That'll guarantee that I stop. Okay. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. Everybody say invited. 
My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now, you have to remember, they're invited to the wedding. They apparently have some history of being connected to this family. It's not like they're strangers who are like, no, I don't have time for that house of prayer thing. They, they were attenders. They just didn't have time right then. It's something else going on. He says, you're the ones that were invited to the wedding. You're the invitees. They made light of it, went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he set out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. I want to tell you the wedding's ready. I declare to you today, the wedding's ready. I can tell by the darkness in the earth, the wedding's ready. The darkness will never outpace the light. The wedding's ready. But those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. Church is about to get real weird. For real. Church is about to get real weird. Because the pressure is going to bring people to church. People are looking for Do you hear people looking for answers right now? Church is going to get weird. The wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. That's what we're getting ready to be is chosen. So I want to tell you, you can come to the wedding and not come to the throne. Stand with me, if you will. You can be one of the ten bridesmaids. And five go out to meet him. All ten actually try. And five find out they don't have enough light to do it. You can come into this room and not come to the throne, is what I'm saying. You can come here for all kinds of great reasons, according to you. And not actually be coming to be broken down in your pride, to be inconvenienced. To find a place to spend your time. To find a place to spend your money. Not because this place needs it. Because you do. Because all of the selfishness leaves you more hungry. All of the self-seeking, self-saving, self-comforting, self-soothing, it leaves you more dry. But the selflessness of being broken down in our pride, it fills us up. You ever experience that? If you want that, it's a rain. He wants to rain on us this morning. Now, it's no accident that the prayer room is closed tomorrow. You can't do the thing I'm talking about. You can want it. You get to want it if you want to. If you want that Holy Spirit right now, would you fall like rain on the dry parts, Lord? The parts that are kind of stuck. Would you fall like oil right now? It's, it's, an, it's nagging. It's like a noise. The machine's working, but there's that noise in the background. Come like oil, God. It's going to break. He says it's going to break if you don't oil it. Holy Spirit, come. Fill us up right now. Thank you that you're telling us this because you like us so much. Thank you for giving us a place to come and find other people that are looking for your throne. Lord, would you give us a, would you, would you pour out the oil of unity, that Psalm 133 oil that runs down Aaron's beard? You're glad that we care. We need help. Just tell him, I'm, we know you care, God. We need help being united together. We just need that oil so that we can move, Lord.
with zeal and smoothness and power, that, that we're ready for you to add more power, Lord. Would you lubricate this thing? Because we want to be ready for you to add more power. We don't want to break when church gets weird, God. Would you come right now? Fill us up. Yeah, I just feel it. I, I can feel it actually coming and soaking. So just baptize us, Lord, in the, the presence of your personality. Baptize us in the presence of your peace, the presence of your love, the presence of your self-control. Just soak us with that reality of your self-control. I'm asking for my friends, Lord, that we'd see the changes that you've been making around here and we'd celebrate them. Lord, we love that you have not given up on Light Hop, but that you have plans that we would long for, a future we would hope for. God, put it in our hearts and put it in our minds. Put it in our prayers this week. In Jesus' name, amen. satisfaction found in your presence. Thank you for that, this well to draw from, to drink from deeply. Lord, I repent for mourning that um, there is no satisfaction to be found in the earth. I'm sorry for complaining that everything else is turning to ash in my mouth. Lord, it's what I've been asking for for a long time. So I just want to thank you and praise you that there is satisfaction found here at your feet, at the sound of your voice. Hallelujah and glory to you, good Father, generous Lord. 